you'll notice the outline. Uh, just the title is alliterated. Oh my goodness, what am I doing? Um, but uh, the points are not. We're going to look at the first followers of Jesus. Uh, if you recall, when we left off last week, we, we looked at Jesus' baptism, his first public appearance as an adult, around age 30, we're told, probably 32, somewhere in there. Um, and we also looked at his subsequent testing in the wilderness, uh, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to recapitulate, to mirror, to echo what happened with Israel as Israel was disobedient in the wilderness, as Israel. Jesus was obedient. He met the temptations and succeeded, all the while quoting Scripture from Deuteronomy, which told of that failure of Israel. So we see Jesus fulfilling that. If he's going to be the king, he needs to represent the people, and he does so. We also are looking at him slowly coming to understanding and us coming with him into understanding of the true nature of his Messiahship. And we're going to see that some more today with the calling of his first followers. Now we're going to look at John, and John is the only gospel that gives us any, any inkling of what happened after what we looked at last week, his baptism and temptation, before he starts what we call the great Galilean ministry. John is the only one who provides anything in between. So the setting is we're somewhere on this side of him having come back from the temptation, but it appears that he is still lingering with, hanging with, even dwelling with, he has a place to stay with John and his disciples, not necessarily following John, but he's with these people. We're not given the nature of why he's still there, but he is. So it's, it's after that, we don't have the full understanding of the timing, but it's sometime after that. John is still, John is still on the east side of the Jordan River, baptizing. He's still going about his ministry. He has disciples. And we're going to see that he is slowly pointing his disciples now to Jesus. He's not the Messiah. He is the forerunner. He's the one calling in the wilderness to prepare the way. And once Jesus is on the scene, he starts pushing his disciples to Jesus. Uh, where's the exact location? We're not really certain. Uh, probably a couple of days' journey from Galilee, somewhere. But, uh, and we're gonna, we're, we'll look at that in just a moment. But John gives us a little more of an understanding of John, John the Gospel writer, gives us a little more understanding of John the Baptist's ministry and that it appears to be not just located in one spot. There's some mobility to this and how John goes about his ministry. What we're not reading, and this is the prerogative of the teacher, we can't read everything going through the life of Christ. What has just happened in John's gospel that we're not reading is that some, is that some Pharisees and teachers of the law had come to John saying, okay, what are you doing? Basically wanting information. Are you the Messiah? What is happening? And John explains, John the Baptist explains to them, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the one pointing to the Messiah. In fact, I have seen the Messiah. When I baptized him, the Holy Spirit came and rested upon him. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Son of God. So he has already made that pronouncement to these people. And on the heels of that, we now see the first followers of Jesus Christ. Now you probably, well you probably, I'm going to tell you, um, 
<laughs> this is what you probably should think. <laughs> um, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you, you know from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that you know, Peter and his brother Andrew were called rather suddenly fishing. This doesn't match that. So we're left to wonder, well, what's, what's the deal? Are they changing it? Did John change it? Because John was written much, much later. This is the last gospel to be written. It's very, very different. A lot of stuff only in John. It's not in any of the other gospels. Not, he's not changing it. He's giving us the, the first introduction of these people to Jesus. Jesus later calls them to give up everything to follow him. This initial meeting is them trying to come to an understanding. This is the Messiah, and we're going to follow, but the actual call to leave everything and become one of the twelve comes later. So it's intriguing that they would know who Jesus is up front, which, of course, gives credence to why they would just drop everything when Jesus says, I want you to leave everything and follow me, because they already knew who he was. And we're going to get this introduction here in this passage today. So that's, that's what we're looking at. And it's interesting to see that the, the actual number of the 12 coalesces over time. That calling com comes not just bam, but over time they slowly draw closer to Christ and Christ slowly draws those 12. Here we get the initial look or glimpse into this. How much do they understand about following Jesus at this point? What do they know about him being the Messiah? Well, what anyone of that day would have thought. They, too, have to learn the full import of what it means to follow Jesus and who this is. So, this is sort of an early look, even though written much later, if that makes sense. All right, so with that, uh, we're going to read, read the passage in two sections. We're going to look at Andrew and Peter first, and then Philip and Nathaniel. All right, so... John, having just talked to these, this envoy from Jerusalem as to who are you and what are you doing, we now get the next day. In fact, John tells us, okay, on the next day, John the writer. This is going to be confusing because there's John the Baptist and there's John the writer of the gospel, the son of Zebedee. And I'm sorry if sometimes it's confusing. I'll try to remember. All right. So having just done that, we read in verses 35 to 42 what happens the next day. So someone read that for us, Jay. Okay. All right. All right. It says, Henry and John's disciples followed Jesus. The next day, John was there again through his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, turning around. Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? I said, come, he said, and I will, you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and one or two who heard what John said and who followed Jesus, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, this is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which, which when translated is Peter. All right, thank you, sir. Less dramatic, isn't it, as far as the call of Peter especially? Um, but we'll see what happens. So it's the next day. Uh, John is still going about his ministry, and some of his disciples are with him. And we know one of them is Andrew. And we know Andrew is Simon Peter's brother, but we're not told who the other one is. Oh, no. Uh, he just said one of them was Andrew. So that leads to speculation. There's two possibilities. One is that it's the gospel writer himself, John. John doesn't refer to himself at all in the writing of the gospel. He'll, he'll say, he'll just be cryptic about who the writer, you know, who he himself is. Uh, if you recall, you know, at the, near the end of the gospel, you know, the, the disciple Jesus loved, okay? Um, so it could be that it's John, and I would say the majority of, of scholars would say that it's probably John. However, there's no reason not to think that it might be Philip, because he encounters Philip later, and Philip and he, he seem to know each other. So it could be Philip as well. There's no reason for it not to necessarily be Philip. But all that to say, we don't, we're not worried about the one who's not named. Because there's a lot of stuff going on with one who is, and that's Andrew. So Andrew and whoever this is, be it John or Philip, are with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist points to Jesus. He sees Jesus there. So there we go. What's Jesus doing? He's already been baptized. He's already gone through the temptation. What's he doing? Well, still preparing. Okay, and obviously, gathering followers. And he's there, and John sees him, and he points to Jesus for these, his own disciples and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And he has already told the visiting envoy from Jerusalem that Jesus is the Lamb of God. To take away the sins of the world. When they hear the Lamb of God, they hear Passover Lamb. If you understand that. They're not hearing... Just a lamb of God, just a little lamb of God. They're hearing Passover lamb. They're hearing sacrifice. They're, they're hearing Passover and Exodus. Okay, that's what they're hearing, the deliverance of Israel. And he says this is the Passover lamb. All of John's gospel is pointing towards trying to help his audience understand who Jesus is as Messiah. And he piles up terms, even just in this passage. He'll pile up terms. He starts with Lamb of God. We're going to hear that he's called already Messiah, the Christ. Later, the one who Moses and the prophets tell about. Later still, the Son of God, the King of Israel. All of these are piled up in just this passage that we're looking at this morning. And John's point is slowly as the gospel unfolds for his audience, us to understand who Jesus truly is, the one and only Son of God, God incarnate, God in flesh, the Passover Lamb, the Messiah, the King. So when they, he says, behold the Lamb of God, they hear, whoa, the sacrifice for Israel. Well, that's intriguing. Yes? Sounds like the Holy Spirit's been busy revealing. Yes, the Holy Spirit's been busy revealing. And imagine... This is John recalling decades later, too, and having the, the benefit of how do I want to get this out and being able to craft it by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So, they're intrigued. Yes, you're intrigued, obviously. Mm-hmm. After the baptism? No, after John has told them about the baptism. The baptism had happened, I'm sorry, the baptism had happened, obviously, at least 40 days and 40 nights, but much, probably a few months before, and this envoy comes to John and asks him, and John recalls it to them. And that's what we've just looked at. So that day that John's, John the writer is talking, John the Baptist is talking about is that day when they came to him and he told them. And then the next day after having told them, we have this episode. Yeah, great question. They're intrigued. So they follow Jesus. How about, I mean, that's, you know, we, people, it's the same thing today. People are intrigued about Jesus. They investigate, they follow. I mean, that's still the pattern, right? Um, but this is quite literal. That's what's different. Look. There's the, the Lamb of God. Whoa, I'm, we're going to go look. And they quite literally follow him, which is, we have to transport ourselves into that. Well, Jesus is aware of them. He turns and sees them and says, what do you want? How's that for an opening? You know, we, what do you seek? What do you want? You know, that's, that's you know, we kind of, oh. but really it's, so, why are you following me? What, what are you looking for? What do you want? I mean, it's, it's obviously he, he is aware of the situation much more than they, but it would be a natural question for anyone. But it's so loaded as well for us. What do you seek? Why are you following me? Um, of course, that would be a great question for people today. Why are you following Jesus? What do you seek? You know, a lot of people think, well, he's my magic talisman. And I'll get everything I want if I just follow Jesus. Or I'll make sure I go to heaven if I follow. In other words, what are, why are you following him? Now, they're going to have to learn this because he is Lord. We, too, have to rehabilitate that. Why are you following Jesus? Is it for something you can get? Or is it because he is Lord and deserves our following? Because if he is Lord, there is no other. Well, what do they seek? Well, notice their answer. They don't. It seems odd to us. They said first, they, they address him politely as rabbi. And John, for his audience, he translates Aramaic for us. First, he transliterates Aramaic, meaning you, he puts in Greek characters an Aramaic word, which is rabbi at this point. And then he translates it in the Greek for his listeners, us. And now it's been translated into English for us. But at the original, in the Greek, he says, which means teacher. So that they understand his audience, decades later, understand what's going on with Aramaic. Now, that term rabbi, only later, near the end of the first century, indicates someone who's been trained and pretty much set aside, like ordained, to be a teacher. That happens later. At this point, rabbi is just an honorific term of respect for one for any teacher that you follow in the Aramaic. So uh, even John the Baptist is called at one point rabbi. Uh, Jesus is called rabbi. Nicodemus, rabbi. It's a, it's a term of respect. Teacher, in that, in that sense, you could call me rabbi. 
don't. But in that sense, okay, in other words, so teacher, okay, that's, that's what's going on with this at this point in time. Later it takes on much more import, but at this point it's that kind of, that kind of title. Yes, sir? Brother Ron. Brother, yeah, there you go. Hey, brother, <laughs> that's ours. That's right. All right. So they address him first as rabbi. Where are you staying? So it's almost like, well, where are you going? Where are you guys going? Where are you going? That's where we want to be. That's for the implication. They don't just want his address. Uh, can you give us our, your address so we can text you later or, you know, whatever. It's, it's no, where, we, can we spend time with you? Where, where are you staying? That's where we want to be. And Jesus says, well, come see. Yes? When we walk side by side with somebody, we're talking to them. But that was not their position. They were just trailing along. And, and he's got more people behind him, so that's when the, the questions come up. Right, yeah. They didn't, they didn't come up to him and say, hey, where are you staying? Yeah, he initiates it. And then, hey, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you staying? That's where we want to go. And that's the implication. We want to learn from you. He says, well, come and see. Now, someone else is going to say, come and see later. We're going to look at in this particular passage we're looking at this morning. And that is still, uh, I think, an invitation to anyone. Well, who is Jesus? Well, come and see. You know, and, the and all that that implies, right? Watch how Jesus works. Come to the church. Watch his people. Come to me. Whatever it might be, come and see. Let's discover. So they go to his house, and they stayed with him that day. And notice John, the writer, gives us just this little, and they stayed with him because it was the 10th hour. Meaning, it, the implication is they, they ate with him and stayed with him. The 10th hour is 4 o'clock. I think the translation that Jay read was, had that in there. Uh, it was basically sunrise to sunset, and sunrise started, for the most part, was like 6 a.m. So the 10th hour is 4 p.m. That's when people would start winding down, ceasing traveling, start to get ready for their meal, and go in for the night. Okay, so 4 p.m. If it was a Roman, if this were Roman timekeeping, the 10th hour would be 10 in the morning because they measured from basically midnight through. But John's not following the Roman at this point, most likely. So... It's four o'clock, so the implication is that they did get to stay with him and learn from him. And then, <coughs> excuse me, uh, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. And notice how Andrew's introduced. Andrew, you know, Simon Peter's brother. You introduce Andrew by the famous brother. Because at this time when John writes his gospel, everyone pretty much knows who Simon Peter is which is kind of odd for us, you know. We're, we're thinking, this is the first time they've heard. Well, no, they've, they know who this is. So, well, then Andrew comes. Well, it's Simon Peter's brother. Oh, that guy, okay. Any of y'all just known as someone's brother <laughs> or sister or whatever, you know? Yeah, sometimes we're just the, it's who we're with, right? Well, when I was growing up, okay. Some of us are known as the spouse of our Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, you're so-and-so, yeah. You're so-and-so's husband. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, when my, I was growing up, Dad being in the Army, uh, military, uh, I was just tops boy, you know, first sergeant top, you know, and so, oh, you're tops boy, 
Yes. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> what can I do for you? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, you know, Simon Peter's um, brother. And here we get our first look at Simon Peter, and it's very brief. Now, John's going to make much more of Simon Peter, and all the gospel writers will. But this is our first intro. It's just boop, and then more anon, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and there's debate even over, um, he found first. He found first. Does that mean first thing he did the next day was, or the first person he contacted was? Does it mean first thing in the morning? And it can mean all those things. We don't care. One of the things that happened is that it, probably the next morning, you have Andrew, I've got, he's got to tell somebody. Got to tell somebody. And he finds his brother. And he brings his brother. Notice what he says to him. He says, first he found him and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Now, when he uses that term, the Messiah, again, it's not been unpacked fully in John's gospel, even for us as we're early in the ministry of Jesus. They're, he's, they're hearing the anointed one, but most likely a national political deliverer of some kind. They're still looking for that. It takes the disciples a long time to figure out the full import of Jesus' Messiahship and ministry. But either way, this is tremendous news. We found the Messiah. Basically, he doesn't realize, though, he said it wrong. The Messiah is actually found there. Okay, and, and that will become clearer and clearer as time goes on. But... He says, uh, you know, we found the Messiah. Notice that uh, you have, again, a translation for us. In the Greek, he says, which in the Greek means Christ. Same word, anointed one. So, again, he's using an Aramaic term and Hebrew term, transliterates it into the Greek, but then translates it into the Greek for us. So, Messiah and Christ, same word. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. So, he brings him to Jesus. And Jesus, first thing he does is give him a new name, give him a nickname, basically. A name that he will eventually have to live into. And it's interesting, um, it's not unusual for teachers to give their students in the ancient world, to give them monikers of their own for the class, to give them sort of nicknames for the inner circle. That still happens if you're on sports teams. Most people have names for each other that other people don't know just within the circle, if that makes sense, that other people know. And it's the case then. And he gives him this name right off the bat, just looks at him and says, first of all, his name, you are Simon, son of John, Simon Barjona, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Kepha is the Aramaic, and it means rock. Which, and then he says, and translated, that's Petros, Peter, which also means rock. Peter was not a name. People didn't call each, there, there weren't any Peters then. People weren't called Peter. So here you have him giving him pretty much a nickname. And interestingly, Jesus only addresses Peter as Cephas or Peter one time, subsequently, he only addresses him as Cephas or Peter after this. First, when Peter makes that grand pronouncement of faith that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he emphasizes Peter's name as rock. The other time 
is when he's, he is reprimanded and told that he will betray Jesus. Those are the only two recorded times we have Jesus calling Peter after this, Peter or Cephas. Otherwise, he calls him Simon, which is kind of intriguing. Paul uses it 11 times of Peter in 1 Corinthians and then in Galatians. He, call, he uses Cephas 11 times. But Jesus, only as far as we know in the recorded Gospels, three times, which is intriguing. Now, he's called by the Gospel writers, Peter, as they're writing, but Jesus himself only addresses him those three times, which is intriguing to me, um, because he's the one who gave him the name. And that's all we have of Peter right now. That's it. That's your initial, you meet someone and they give you a new name. Right off the bat. I mean, that's, that's kind of shocking. Uh, as any, but, he, you know, so he's saying, wow, there's something about this guy. But that's our first introduction to Peter. And he was introduced to Jesus by his brother, Andrew. So those are the first two followers we have. Now the next two are because Jesus decides at this point now to go to Galilee. Most of his ministry that we have recorded in the Synoptic Gospels takes place in Galilee. So he's, he's going to head there. But along the way, he gathers either two more or one more. It depends on whether the one who's not named is Philip or whether the one who's not named is John the Gospel writer. But either way, you have now Philip and Nathaniel coming onto the scene as Jesus decides to go to Galilee. Remember, they're, they're south of Galilee at this point on the east side of the Jordan River, probably a little bit north of Jericho, somewhere in there. We're not, we're not certain. But he's now going to start his ministry proper, if they want to think of it that way, by heading towards Galilee. Well, with that, let's hear what happens. Verses 43 to 51. I meant for someone to read it out loud. Our other reader is missing. <laughs> the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophet also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you you were under a fig tree? That's actually written as a statement, not as a question. I apologize. I, you shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. 
All right. And don't apologize. And the <laughs> most Greek texts have that as a question. Oh. Yeah. So you're, see, you were just channeling. Are we? <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> and, and, and when I say most Greek texts, it's because punctuation is added later. Okay. A punctuation is an editorial choice by later manuscript copiers. The original manuscripts had no punctuation, no capitalization, no spaces between words, no paragraphs. It's just a running, yeah. So, um, so it's, that's why I say most, because it just depends. It's an editorial choice. All right, well, all that having been said, um, notice the next day he, meaning Jesus, he purposed to go to Galilee. He's from Galilee. We're told that everybody he's encountered so far is from Galilee. Bethsaida is in Galilee. Nathaniel's from Cana. That's in Galilee. Peter and Andrew are from Bethsaida, but are hanging out in Capernaum, Mark tells us. Jesus actually is from Nazareth in Galilee, but he headquarters in Capernaum. All of that is in Galilee. So you have to have that in mind for some of the excitement as well and for some of the questioning because they're all Galileans. So, you know, it's like being away from Texas. And, and, Jesus, and, you know, and Jesus says, okay, well, let's go. I want to, we're going back to Texas. And all the Texans go, yes, we're going to Texas. Um, so that's where they're going. And hence Nathaniel's question, the Messiah's from Texas? Okay, you see what I mean? It's, I mean, it's one thing to go back there, but I mean, the Messiah, no. So anyway, we'll get to that. So there's that common bond already. So he's going to Galilee. So when he finds Philip, here's where the, the idea of, okay, now has Philip, was Philip the other unnamed one? If so, then chances are he's telling Philip, because he's already met him and met with him and all that. He has found him and said, follow me to Galilee. He's not saying an initial call, follow me. Uh, or it could be, that he is, if it's not, if it's the first time he's met Philip, he's saying, follow me, but probably Philip is an understanding, too, of to Galilee, not just the first call as the disciple. That, those, again, those calls to leave everything will come later. Either way, though, Philip, like Andrew, he's got to go get someone else. He's got to tell someone. And we're told at this point, that Philip was from Bethsaida, same place Andrew and Peter. And again, that's where they were born. They're headquartered in and working out of uh, Capernaum. Bethsaida means um, basically the, ho the house of fishing. So it's, it's, it's up near the Sea of Galilee on the east side of the Jordan River. So that's up north from where they are, still on the same side of the Jordan, but north of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is on the west side. The same with Cana and, and uh, Nazareth. They're all west side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, anyway, he finds Nathanael. And notice how he, he introduces him. We found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. So that's a basic reference to Scripture of the day. The law and the prophets. We have found the one that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the one that it's all pointing to as the Messiah. We found him. 
Now notice uh, that Philip introduces him by speaking of Scripture. It appears Nathaniel is probably a student of Scripture. That idea of the fig tree we'll talk about later in just a moment kind of hints at that. You're thinking a fig tree? Yes, we'll get to that in a moment. So he introduces him by, by saying this is the scriptural fulfillment. We found him. And they would have heard Messiah. That's how he would have interpreted that. And get this. <laughs> okay, we found him. And get this. It's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. He's a Nazarene. He's Galilean. We found him, and guess what? He's Galilean too. We missed that part. I mean, there he is. he's excited. He, he, that's who it is. And that hits Nathaniel's response. You've got to be kidding. That's, is anything good from not, you know, in other words, people have tried and tried. Was that a saying back then, those kind of things? Not really. It's just provincialism, as we all are, you know. Well, not, oh, not from that place. You know, that nothing good can come from home. California. Keep your mouth shut. All right. Um, so, yeah, he's just, you, our reading would be, you're, you're kidding. That's kind of how we would hear that today. Well, come and see. Notice I told you it was going to come up again, and here you have Philip telling Nathaniel, come and see. Now, before we go further with Nathaniel, we've got to figure out who this guy is. In your, in your memory of the lists of the disciples from the synoptics, all three synoptic gospels have a list of the twelve. Guess who's not in it? Nathaniel. Who is this guy? Well, two options. All right. Well, there's three, but the third is just bogus, and I'm not even going to bring it up. Two options. One is that this is... He's only mentioned twice. This is the first time, and we're told later in John 21, when, when Jesus has resurrected, and he has, and, and Peter and some others go fishing, and he has the meal for them. Nathaniel is mentioned there. So he's mentioned in John twice, here and there. There is no Nathaniel in the synoptics. And in that second mention, that's how we know he's from Canaan, Cana, because the writer tells us. He says, and Nathaniel from Cana. So those are the two mentions of Nathaniel. However, there is a large contingent and throughout church history who have identified Nathaniel as Bartholomew, the, the disciple Bartholomew. Why would they do that? Well, because Bartholomew is not really a name. It's just an indicator. Um, because Bar means son, right? Son of like Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. We don't call him just, hey, son of Jonah. <coughs> Bartholomew is just that, son of Tholomaeus. And that's all he's got? That's his name? Uh, when it actually it's just a descriptor. So people have said because that's just a descriptor, that most likely Bartholomew is Nathaniel. Nathaniel, son of Tholomaeus. That again, it's just speculation. So you have a choice. You can say, this is cool. Here's a guy who follows Jesus, and he's there the whole time, but he's not one of the twelve, which of course is the case. There are people who follow Jesus his whole ministry, but they're not one of the inner circle. 
They're not one of the twelve. And it may be the case that that's who Nathaniel is. And it's interesting that one of the first followers is someone who's not in the inner circle of the twelve. Or, if you want everything tidy, nice little bow, then it's Bartholomew. Either way, you're just going to have to live with your decision. And it may be the question when you get to the gate. What if, what if St. Peter asks you, all right, who is Nathaniel? And what if you get it wrong? No, I'm kidding. All right, so there we go. Was your hand up, Tom? No, okay. <laughs> You're writing that down. Could be question at gate. Okay. All right, no. I'm trying. Yeah, okay, good. Eek. All right, yes, ma'am. <coughs> Well, he's mentioned in the lists of the, of the disciples. We're not told much about him, though. Correct. Right. It's like Philip, too. Most of what we know about Philip is, is not flattering. Philip seems to need help all the time. Um, he, he seems to not be as, mm, as the other disciples, which is kind of cool, too. Right? When we encounter Philip later, he's the one who's going to be asking the questions that everyone's like, what? Or he's going to be needing help, or, which is kind of intriguing, too, because Jesus called him. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great question that led into something I'd forgotten to mention. Cool. All right. Well, it's intriguing now about how once, once uh, Nathaniel comes to Jesus, it's, this is an intriguing little episode here about what's going on with Nathanael and what Jesus tells him. So he sees Nathanael coming, and he says, Look, this is truly an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Wow. Um, who was who renamed Israel? Jacob. A man full of, until his change, guile. In fact... Uh, when he steals the birthright, we're told that he is, it's by guile that he did this, deceit. So there's a play on this. Now here's, now here's an Israelite who earned the name. He is a true Israelite, no guile, meaning he's not hypocritical, he's, he's open to this. Just as God sought out Israel and found them, so Jesus seeks out new Israel, a true Israelite. Who's, who, who's going to listen to this? I don't know that, it's, that it means anything, but in, um, in Hosea chapter 9, the prophet Hosea is recounting God dealing with Israel. He's, in, he's talking about how they have rebelled, obviously. But in his call, he says this, When I found Israel, it's Hosea chapter 9, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. So there may be a little bit of here of, of, of Jesus, you know, as God his Father claimed Israel, so Jesus claims the new Israel. There's more going on here than that. So he says, look, an Israelite with no guile, again, that calls up images of Jacob. Nathaniel says to him, well, how do you know me? He's not saying, well, how did you know I was an Israelite with no guile? Because, that's because if he has no guile, he wouldn't mean it that way. He just mean now, you're talking like you know me. How do you know me? Have we met? 
How is that possible? And Jesus says rather cryptically, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. That's it? And at that, Nathanael falls to his knees and declares that this is the Son of God, the King of Israel. Wow, go sit under a fig tree. Well, there's obviously we're, we need some context for this to make sense. Um, the fig tree was, in rabbinic literature, a, a place of, it was a study of Torah. It was, a, it was kind of used as an image of the study of Torah. Fig tree could also be sort of a nickname for home. Uh, so it's a place of contemplation, Probably a place where Nathaniel experienced some amazing experience in his study of Torah with God. It appears that there's something significant that only Jesus knows about, that Nathaniel knows about, that he's able to mark, that would cause Nathaniel to just, whoa, you are the Messiah. And again, this is all speculation because we're not told. But given those, those resonances from other literature and other things, that's probably a little of what's going on. So you have basically a scale. On the one, it could just be, well, I saw you over there in a fig tree. Meaning, he could have just done that. Oh, before, before, before he found you, I saw you over there. It could be that. All the way towards this full-orbed understanding of the imagery of God calling Israel and all that stuff, or anywhere in between. But something about it is significant to Nathaniel that Jesus knows that he pinpoints. Something that rattles him, whatever that might be. Yes? Don't we assume that Jesus actually didn't physically see him under the tree? It wasn't close? It was, it was far off and... That's in between, yeah. Did he see him or was this, he's saying, I saw you, meaning I've, in my knowledge, I know of you. I've seen this. Well, whatever it is, Nathaniel believes. Addresses him as rabbi. You are the son of God and the king of Israel. And then, then a little humor. Jesus here saying, uh, you mean because I said that I saw you under a fig tree, you believe? You know, and, and it's probably a little inside joke with, with him. You think, Jesus doesn't joke. You know, there's a lot of people like that. I think Jesus would never have smiled or laughed or joked or done any of that. And that's why little kids wanted to be around him. Come on. This is someone little kids wanted to be around all the time. This is a happy dude. Um, and, and remember, Jesus is, God is more intelligent than us, not less. If, if you know when people are kidding, I think he does. He's like, oh, did you hear what he just said? You know, guys bantering. Well, of course he knows. He's more intelligent. And he has a way better sense of humor. He gave us a sense of humor. So it's, we should expect that people should laugh around him. And a lot of his parables and a lot of the things he does, there was a lot of laughter. And we just kind of miss it. And in this case, that's one of those. So, I, saw, I, saw, I said I saw you under fig tree. And you believe. Oh, wow. <laughs> Guess what? And now he goes on. 
you shall see greater things than that. You ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's a good translation. You ain't seen nothing yet. Write that down. <laughs> Let's hope they did. Okay. And then, and then we get a, a Johnism, a, a, a Johannine, if you want to use the scholarly term, uh, that he will have on Jesus' lips the double amen, amen. The, again, this is one he doesn't translate for us. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew, Aramaic, amen, and the Greek, amen, which we use to end prayers, like it's sign-off, you know, sort of we use it as a sign-off term, amen, okay, I'm done. Uh, but originally it was, this is firm, this is solid, this is a, this is a firm declaration. Um, and John has Jesus using it twice, quite a bit. Firm is this, I mean firm, and we translate it truly, truly. Some of your Bibles may actually say, amen, amen, but that's the term that's used there. But truly, truly, this is firm. I say to you, and here's part of that greater that's going to come. You're going to see the heavens open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Who does that remind you of? Jacob's, oh, oh. <laughs> remember Jacob's ladder? Who does that remind you of? <laughs> I meant to say whose ladder. Okay, anyway, all right. Yeah, and, and of course, the image, the, the whole imagery of Jacob has already been brought up. This is a true Israelite. No guile. And now he says, you, in whom there is no deceit, remember? I just called you the true Israelite. Remember the other one? Yeah. The, the latter? Because you're going to see that for real. Now, um, I've read a translation too, by the way, that, that, that line which says, a true Israelite. It's, and the translation was, it's actually a paraphrase, but I think it captures it well. Look, a true Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. That's kind of... But it gets the point across for us in English. Um, and just as Jacob in his dream saw this communion between heaven and earth, so Jesus is saying, you will now see that come in full, the communion of heaven and earth. Indeed, his very presence. He is the incarnate communion of heaven and earth. He's the latter. He is that latter. He is the communion between heaven and earth. Fully God, fully man. John as well, is, as, he, as we, he goes through his gospel, is helping us to see Jesus supplanting the temple. The temple, the place where heaven and earth met. Here you have Jesus declaring early on, you're going to see this come in full. You and I are the temple of God. We are to be where heaven and earth meet. When we pray, if what we say about prayer is true, that when we pray, at that point, heaven and earth come together. Because we are voicing our requests and our praises to one who is beyond our dimension. In the heavenlies, heaven and earth come together. We see this. Jesus says, you're going to see it. You wait. Well, we're still seeing it. We're part of it. And notice he calls himself the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite reference for himself. 
Often he won't use the word I. He'll use it in substitute. He'll say, instead of I, he'll say the Son of Man. But why the Son of Man? That's from Daniel. We're told in Daniel that in one of his visions, he sees one as a Son of Man who is this, this heavenly being. And there's associations with that. But most likely, as scholars through the years have looked at this, there's that association of divinity. There's also an an innate identity with us. You know, yes, he is the son of God, but he's also the son of man. There's an identity with us. But more than anything, that term was not one that people associated with a nationalistic Messiah. There's, in other words, there's no baggage that comes with that term. So when he refers to himself as the son of man, he doesn't have to worry about people thinking, at least from his lips, that he's this conquering, militaristic, political messiah. None of that baggage comes with that. In other words, people can associate who they think he is just by what he says and does and associate all of that with that title, the Son of Man. So he uses that title to refer to himself more than any other. We see here with the first followers, the calling of the next followers. Notice that generation. Hey, I have found the Messiah. Really, the Messiah's found us. But we found the one. Come and see, come and see, come and see. And that, of course, is still our call. We, too, now are followers of the Messiah. Well, we go now throughout this week and go to others and say, you know what? You know the... I know someone, someone unique, someone who is the, the Lamb of God, the King of Israel, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of Man. I want you to come and see. Now, will they understand all that right off the bat? Well, no. No, they won't. The disciples didn't understand all of it all, all at once, but there was an excitement and a drive to make sure the truth was known. You know, there's people, a lot of people today excited about, oh, it's another high holy day of the church year, it's Super Bowl Sunday. There's a lot of folks <laughs> excited about the game, right? And there's a lot of folks who, believe it or not, in the United States, don't understand football, don't watch football, don't care about football. But there are a lot of people who are so into football that they're going to invite them to this party, through their parties today, and say, there's this big game, and well, I don't like, well, come and see. They're going to do that. And, that. and you know what? They're not going to play a dumbed-down version of the game for those who don't get it. It's going to be the full-orbed pinnacle of this is what football is. And the people who are so excited about it are going to take the time to explain it to those who don't get it. How come in the church we do just the opposite? We think we have to dumb everything down so that everyone can understand it upon walking in the door rather than our excitement be the thing of, no, this is the full-grown bit you're going to see right here. And I'll take the time to tell you what's going on. And then we wonder why people don't grow in Christ, because they hear the same, a lot of churches, they hear the same sermon every week, because it's all intended down here. And no one gets to grow. Be so excited that you're willing to explain all this. When you say, come and see, you go, hey, you're probably not going to understand everything. I'll explain it. Yeah, do that. Come and see. Yeah, 
Bowl. Super Duper Bowl, sorry, yes. Well, anyway, that was, I was preaching, sorry. Anyway, let's pray. Thanks, Father, for uh, our time together this morning. Uh, for our glimpse into the early call of the disciples and uh, just to see what's going on, uh, to get that glimpse. Thank you for the scripture and, and for all those throughout the centuries who've taken time and effort to preserve it for us and study it and, and do so much so that we can get the, the full uh, benefit of their wisdom and your Holy Spirit acting upon them. Our prayer now is that we would go forth from here and, uh, and let people know what we found. And who's found us? And tell people, come and see. In Christ's name, amen. amen.